guys, and welcome back to episode five for the podcast of Jimmy D and Mr. B. I'm Jimmy D. And I am Mr. B, and we're here to talk about some history. All right, so new topic for this week, and it's Napoleon uh, Bonaparte is our person this week. So we've gone from last week, which was about a whole topic, and and now and now we're back to going on to an individual. Um, Clint, what's your opinion of Napoleon at this stage, and what's your kind of understanding of his um, life, really? Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, before going into the research of this, I knew of Napoleon. I think everyone knows of Napoleon. It's one of those things that's sort of in pop culture, but I probably didn't know the detail of, you know, his reign and um, what he was able to do. I sort of understood that he was one of those big conqueror-type leaders, yeah. you know, similar to like a, you know, Attila the Hun back in the day or yeah, definitely. Um, Julius Caesar. Like he was one of those guys that just wanted to, take as much as he could exactly um, whilst in charge. Exactly right. So we'll basically crack in and um, he was, he, well, we, we won't spend too much time on his early life, but um, because we want to get into the juicy stuff, but he born on the island of uh, Corsica, which was an Italian island, but then taken over by the French. His family was uh, noble, but they weren't a rich family. So he wasn't growing up in like uh huge houses with servants and stuff he was they were of they they were noble but they weren't they weren't rich um he eventually attended school in mainland france and then eventually uh graduated from uh uh school and joined the army where he finished school there as well he became an officer in the army and he, he did pretty well. And pretty much as he got into uh, his officer training and, and he, and he got into that, he, the French revolution started in 1789. So he's pretty much, he's grown up and he's straight away. He's into uh, warfare. So he gets into it very quickly and the French revolution only goes for about three years. But Clint, if you just want to dive a little bit into the French revolution and kind of explain what he did during that time. Yeah. So I guess the French revolution could be a whole topic unto itself and it might be one day. Um, so I'll give like a little bit of a, a brief thing because I think it's important to understand that because it's so important in Napoleon's rise. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's that it's important to kind of understand the context of what was going on in France at the time. So basically, um, very formative revolution. There was uh, the king at the time, um, Louis the 15th, I believe, with his wife, Marie Antoinette. The nobles and the royals were just living it up in France whilst the country were absolutely poor and shambolic. So they're having all this lavish lifestyle and the poor and the peasants are not appreciating it. Long story short, they rise up and take control of the country. Like I said, I'd love to get really in-depth into it um, at some stage later on. Um, You know, the king was beheaded, the Marie Antoinette was beheaded, and, um, yeah, the people were in charge of France. And this probably led to a little bit of an opening for young Napoleon after all his success uh, militarily as a young man, Jimmy. 
Yeah, so he, I mean, he he ended up becoming a general by the end of the war. Really, like he was promoted up, and then he sort of began his his rise to power. He he fought in um, a battle against the Austrian armies in 1796 in a series of fights there. And then the following year, the Directory, which was a five-person group in France that kind of ran the country, they had they thought, you know what, he's doing a pretty good job. We'll we'll um, essentially make him in charge of all the uh, armies. And yeah. um, Napoleon was, although he had a big ego, he he wasn't necessarily uh, ruled by and knew when and when not to pick fights. In, in the first case, one of these examples is he was going to fight the Royal Navy of England, which at the time was probably the most powerful navy in the world. And he thought, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And he instead decided to invade Egypt, and yeah, pick your battles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was. He, I mean, he didn't do this a bit later on, which we'll explain. But at this time, he was really good at knowing when and when not to fight, and who to and who not attack. So he went to Egypt to wipe out the uh, British trade routes, which included India as well, and he was he was successful in that. However. He also then decided to invade the Ottoman Empire and uh, and some parts of Syria, which were also controlled by the Ottoman Empire, and that didn't work out too well. But ever the uh, enthusiast and ever the man to take advantage of a situation, he realised what was happening in France and he decided to head back um, home. And then in 1799, the coup of 18 uh, Brumaire happened where he essentially got rid of that five-person uh, group of men who were uh, running the country and with all the... Yeah, and they weren't running it particularly well, which no, I think made no. it pretty easy for Napoleon to... Exactly. And drum up the support. Exactly. And obviously having control of the army, he had that as right behind him as well. And the army... Um, were right behind him as well, so he pretty much uh, he pretty much he went in, he got rid of them, and he became the he pretty much in, inserted himself as the main guy in France. Yeah, um, I guess at the time the government structure was sort of parliamentary, so he kind of put himself at the top of that. Exactly right. Yeah, kind of form it a little bit more to how he wanted. A country to be run, and exactly it was very right. autocratic. Exactly, and during that time, he centralized. Um, he centralized it, and he instituted reforms, which were like about banking and education. Um, he supported the arts. He improved uh, the uh, France's. Uh, uh, friendship with the Pope because at that time it wasn't that great. So he sorted that out and really um, kind of unified France in a way they hadn't really been for some time, especially yeah. you've just come out of a post-revolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's it, even though you've got rid of someone, you, your country doesn't automatically all come together. It's still, still fractured. And obviously there's still nobles and rich people who own land and whatnot. So he's really kind of brought the country all together. And, and there was really only, like, a few years between, like, King Louis and Napoleon yeah, as exactly, well. Exactly. But, he, yeah. I mean, he was a man who moved, moved, moved quickly in his, in his life because he 
he he wasn't a patient man. Um, and he one of his more significant accomplishments was the uh, Napoleonic Code. And if you want to go into a bit of uh, detail about that, Clint, because it was pretty interesting. Yeah, so I guess the Napoleonic Code was a lot about the rights of the people um, and it was quite progressive in the rights it gave to, like, landowners, having a business, having choices around your life, all of that sort of stuff. A lot of it was adopted by other countries as well. Yep. I think the criticism of it being that, like, it was really bad for women generally, but I guess we're looking at late 1700s Europe and um, there wasn't a lot um, going for women at this time no. in general. So, um, but, yeah, it's very much focused on improving the rights and legal, you know, rights of French citizens. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which, which, I mean, is fairly different to how they had it in the previous few years with the king. So even though, yes, it wasn't great for women, for the greater good of the people of France, he really empowered them, which they hadn't really been empowered yeah. in, in It the probably past. helped to remove some of the class divides as well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that existed, particularly in that sort of um, monarchy time, yeah. pre-revolution, um, yeah. And then a few years later, in 1804, Napoleon thought, you know what, being head of the parliament, this thing's pretty good, but he, he wanted a bit more power. So in 1804, he crowned himself the Emperor of France in a lavish ceremony, as you do. And, that and this was big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Emperor of France. Like yeah. Previously that had kings, but... Yeah. He really wanted to evoke the imagery, I think, of like Julius Caesar and these yeah. great um, conquerors. And I think a lot of the art at the time and pictures of him yeah. made it were very lavish. I would exactly say. right. So he's had his lavish ceremony. He's he's emperor and supreme ruler of France pretty much now. So um, he's really inserted himself as the leader in really a short amount of time, pretty much gone from the revolution to being head of the army to being pretty much the number one guy to then even more so the number one guy as the emperor of France. So he's really jumped up in his life so far. Now begins the reign of Napoleon. Um, if you just want to go through his brief, his the, the, the start of his reign, and then we'll get into one of his uh, big fights later on. Yeah, so I guess his whole reign was pretty much characterised by wars known as the Napoleonic Wars, um, yeah. and it's impossible for us to talk about all of those wars because I think I read somewhere that he was he was on the front line of about sixty six battles during yeah, his he, reign. Yeah, so. he, he 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 wasn't one of those generals or leaders who would sit back in these castles and watch. He he really wanted to uh, be there and. Um, be involved because he was so good at it. He it was almost an advantage for him to be there rather than him be in France. Yeah, and I would say like he spent the majority of his reign as uh, emperor of France. Um, you know, on the battlefields yeah. compared to sitting in Parliament. Even though he was able, like we said, to introduce some good you know um, reforms to France at the same time. So there's big arguments to be made about the quality of his leadership. There. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I guess one of his uh, one of the big stories that's uh, cool one to talk about is uh, the thing called the Louisiana Purchase. So at the time, um, France owned many of the territories within what's you know currently the United States, and he managed to sell Louisiana, which is a massive chunk of land, yeah, um, where New Orleans is and all that sort of stuff, for uh, fifteen million dollars to the United States because France needed the cash. Good move or bad move, Jimmy? Um, 
I mean, at the time, he probably needed the money, so he was probably happy with whatever he was asking. But I think it's later to become known as one of the worst uh, trade-offs of all time. Um, I don't know if you know, many people know how big Louisiana is, but it is a massive parcel of land. And um, even if you translate them the money from now to today, it's still a very small amount considering what, what it was worth. But, I mean, he's at war. He needs the money quick. Maybe that was yeah. part of the reason why he was happy to sell it for so much. Um, and you're probably just going to have to fight over it later. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I mean, France were involved in a lot of the, the fighting in the States in the French and Indian Wars. So he probably thought, look, this is one way to solve a problem as well as help out with an, another one. So two birds, one stone situation. So, like I said, a lot of wars on the way through, um, probably too much to discuss, but we are going to go into, I guess, some of the highlight reels that yeah. show what an amazing military leader um, and, you know, also somewhat flawed military leader exactly. Napoleon was. So, first one, um, are we going to talk about uh, Austerlitz, Jimmy? Right. So, I mean, this is probably considered his one of his greatest ever wins as a as a as general, um, previous to this battle, the British had just destroyed the French fleet at the Battle of uh, 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 Trafalgar, and pretty much this left Napoleon with only one option, which was to absolutely uh, dominate by land. And this was kind yeah. of the this was kind of the story of the French and English. The the English would dominate. By by sea and would always kind of outmaneuver the French, but then the French yeah. always had it on the on the land. They so had would, the advantage. France had to cross the channel to get to yeah. them, and they mili- their fleets were obviously far inferior to Britain. Exactly right. So here comes the Battle of Austerlitz, where pretty much there was a, a coalition of armies. So the Russians and the Austrians mainly had decided to join up because they weren't really a fan of what Napoleon was doing and they kind of wanted to stop him in his tracks. Now, as the battle goes, Napoleon had about sixty to 70,000 troops as where the Austrians and the Russians had about 90,000. So French outnumbered, but Napoleon was pretty much a genius when it came to fighting. He actually invented uh, the uh, uh, core system, so like having first corps, second corps, third and fourth and fifth and so on, which basically allowed his troops to move in separate groups but as individual armies pretty much instead of one large army, Um, and that really allowed his army to move faster than other armies because most armies pretty much moved as one big group. He kind of scrapped that, and that system is actually used throughout history from really that point on. So um, he really changed the way that armies moved. So the first part of this battle is he comes up against a general, the uh, Austrian general Mack, and the Austrian general's pretty much his, his army's set up, it's ready to go. Pretty much snapshot. Napoleon sends a small group to the front and then with the rest of his army because they're so mobile he moves around the back and absolutely crushes Mac that's part one of Austerlitz then a bit later on he's coming up against the main force of uh, the Austrian and 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 the, the Russian forces and he's set this up 
perfectly. He's picked he's picked the place where he wants to fight them. He's and he's separated his army. Now, usually you would think separating your army is probably not the greatest move, but in this case, it was a masterstroke. He's left a small group of men to the south of uh, of Austerlitz, and he's taken the rest of his army up up above them to the north. And pretty much uh, the, the Russians and Austrians have said, okay, we're going to bring them straight up to this main force, and... And essentially what happens is, without going into too much detail, because it's going to take a lot longer to talk about, he pretty much flanks them again and envelops their army and surrounds them. And he absolutely crushes the French and the Austrians at this time. Now, at that time, uh, the Austrians were a part of the Holy Roman Empire, which essentially covered Germany, Austria, parts of France. So it was quite a large area, and he pretty much... From that point on, uh, it, he got rid of the Holy Roman Empire and it ceased to exist from that point on. And yeah, he pretty much sort of created his own empire within Europe. Like yeah, the amount so, of territory he was able to claim at certain points was huge. Exactly right. So he's taken, he's, he's wiped out two huge armies really and he's, and he's established the Confederation of, 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 of the Rhine which was pretty much the river that separates France and Germany. Um, so he's really, um, he's really taken a huge step in securing more land for France. And he's also in really he's, he's made a fool of two uh, big countries. Um, just in the, for a little bit more of his reign, he established, uh, French aristocracy again, which was kind of the opposite point, <laughs> which was kind of uh, the, um, yeah. the, yeah, the opposite the point. the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and they, I mean, it went full circle as a revolution does, didn't it? Because they exa- went from one autocratic monarchy to basically an autocratic dictator exactly within a very right. short amount of time. Exactly right. And I mean, he's, he's <laughs> and, and as a good emperor does, all his friends have gotten lands and his family's gotten lands and he's pretty much uh, given that land to areas that he's just taken over in Austria and what was a part of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, I think he had several brothers and he'd take one area like Austria and he'd just put one of his brothers in as the leader. Yeah. And he just spread his, uh, yeah, spread France's reach across yeah, exactly. the majority of continental Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, that battle of Austerlitz really set him up for the future and was really like a main, a main thing that he had to do to take control of a large part of Europe. Unfortunately, though, all good things must come to an end. And and really, his downfall began in 1810. Did you want to give us a brief uh, start on that, Clint? Yeah, so I guess at this time, you know, Russia, as we sort of picture, is sort of part of mainland Europe, but it's also, you know, stretches right across. Russia pretty much withdrew from continental Europe, not really liking what Napoleon was doing, yeah. um, taking over massive parts of it. Um In retaliation, Napoleon set his sights on taking Russia in the summer of 1812, which um, if you, you just have to look at Russia on a map to understand how big of a task that is. It's a massive country with really harsh climates. Um, But yeah, he ended up gathering, I guess Napoleon has a lot of control around Europe and was able to muster up about 600 to 700,000 troops, which is a huge amount of people at the time. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't know necessarily know the, the populations of Europe at the time, but for back then, that was a that was a huge army to to take. Yeah. So he marched then into into Russia, which um, was, you know, ends up being kind of part of his downfall. Yeah. Um, and maybe an example of overreaching exactly. your empire, trying to take more than you like. Yeah filling up your plate more than you can actually stomach, I would say. Exactly right, yeah. And, I mean, the the, the, the French were wanting a full-scale war. They wanted, like, to meet the Russian troops. They wanted to fight them straight away. But the Russians adopted a strategy of they'd basically uh, stay at, like, a distance from the French. They'd keep moving back further into Russia so that um, Napoleon's troops would keep having to march and march and march. And this was really uh, the opposite strategy to what they had used previously in the Battle of Austerlitz before. They really tried to, like, just smash smash Napoleon. But this time they'd learn from their mistakes and they would just trick I mean, deep. I would as well. Like, yeah. Napoleon has this reputation of being the best at wars. Why exactly right. Why face him head on? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, mean, and, I mean, Napoleon wasn't... He wasn't prepared for a long campaign. This was meant to be quick and easy. You take over Russia, done. But, uh, I mean, the the Russians just kept extending the campaign. There was a small uh, fight uh, there in September, but it was kind of indecisive and not much really came of it. Finally, Napoleon's forces had marched on the capital uh, and but they were discovered that the entire population had been evacuated. There was nobody there. So they yeah. marched all this way, pretty much ready to fight. And again, the Russians had evacuated. The army wasn't there. There was no people there. And 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 basically Napoleon was like, what's going on? Um, and the Russians had all had left. They'd also... Yeah, they basically set fire to the city yeah, as they left, right? Like yeah, their they, capital, Moscow, like... Exactly right. So they'd really sacrificed the city, but it was going to be for what was going to be the uh, greater good. And they'd burnt crops and got rid of the farmland and stuff and pretty much left it as just a husk of a city. But at the same time, Napoleon would have been hoping to resupply there probably uh, to rest his army, but um, that didn't really work out. So um, Napoleon's had to basically turn back now. He has to go back to France. And this is where the Russians basically switch strategies and they go right on the offensive and they just start attacking Napoleon's army. And by the time Napoleon has made it out of Russia, he's gone from 600 to 700,000 troops down to 100,000. So his army has been absolutely uh, crushed. Um, Death, starvation, um, retreating as well. Like I think quite a few people realised Russia wasn't a fun place to march through and just left. No, exactly. So um, this really crushed Napoleon's army and it would have been a humiliating loss for him. Um, As someone who had a pretty big ego, it would have been hard to take. So then there was another battle in 1813 and Napoleon uh, was defeated again, this time by the Austrian, the Prussians and the the Russian and Swedish troops. So he's just had a loss in Russia. He's had an, another loss in 1813. And essentially Napoleon has gone all the way uh, to France. And by 1814, this uh 
these 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 group of nations have pretty much have come to France and they and and they've uh, taken over the, the the main city. Yeah. So, so Napoleon's empire was pretty much yeah they, at this yeah, time. Exactly right. And in eighteen fourteen, uh, in April, he abdicated his throne. Yeah, still only in his mid forties, so a relatively young man. Yeah, so I mean, in a short amount of time in his ten year reign, he's done a lot of good for France, and he's taken land. But at the end of the day, he's probably overreached, and now he's lost his his throne. Um, but uh, he was he was given sovereignty over a small island of Elba in the Mediterranean, where he was exiled. But obviously. Yep. Still living quite they, they uh, comfortably. Want him around, yeah. No. They wanted him far out of the way to uh, not try to take power back. I guess because he was quite a formidable foe. He, exactly, and obviously he still had friends in France. It's not like he came back and everyone just hated him. He still had a lot of powerful friends. So the best solution was to um, send him as pretty much as far away as as they could to the island of Elba. But as we'll find out, you can't keep a small man down. Um, Yeah, so I guess after less than a year in exile, he managed to actually escape Elba. And like you said, he had a lot of friends and supporters back in France who were able to kind of organise a a return or a comeback show. Yeah. And, I mean, he kind of decided, well, you know what, if I'm going to try and make it back, I'm going to make the first step. And he's basically gone up against. He's basically raised a new new army, and he's made a preemptive strike on this on the on on, on on these on these countries. And he's and he's and he's had a win. So scoreboard on Napoleon's side again. But then in 1815, he uh, he's taken his forces to invade uh, uh, Belgium, and for the decisive battle of uh, Waterloo. Uh, yeah. And again, this wasn't so much a battle against Belgium, was it? It was more because the British forces were set up there. Exactly. And again, it's that Britain versus France narrative exactly. that we get a lot exactly. through this century. Exactly right. And I mean, again, this is a battle that you could spend a whole podcast episode on because it's so uh, important in history. Um, and Napoleon uh, loses, essentially. Uh, uh, um, he was out outplayed really again by uh, the English in this one. And with the assistance of uh, other armies, the British won and Napoleon was again forced to abdicate on June 22nd, 1815. So a pretty short uh, second coming of, 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 uh, of, of Napoleon there. Yeah. And they needed to get rid of him again. So yeah. he again got exiled and, Turns out last one was a little bit too easy to get back from. Exactly. So they um, put him on a British-held island of St Helena out in the South Atlantic Ocean to make it really difficult for him to return. Exactly. And I, and I think this time there was probably a few more guards and a few more people who weren't so friendly to uh, to a Napoleon there. And he wasn't given as much leeway when he was sent to St. Helena either as where he was actually given sovereignty over Elba. Yeah. Um, and they were able to keep him there for six years yeah. until um, he passed away at only 51. Exactly so. right. So um, the most likely cause was from stomach cancer, but also uh, was uh, ingesting some poison as well because he wanted to die, ingested too much. So some say he did it himself, others 
could have been an, an assassination attempt. But at the end of, end of the day, it looked like he died from stomach cancer. Um, he was buried in uh, St. Helena, but wanted to be laid rest on the Seine among his French people who he loved so much. Eventually, in 1840, he was returned to France and entombed in a crypt in Paris where other French uh, uh, officers and uh, generals had been laid to rest. So that's pretty much Napoleon uh, Bonaparte. Uh, any ending thoughts, Clint? Yeah, I guess much shorter topic than the um, Crusades that we did in the, over the last couple of weeks. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> I know historically... Um, Napoleon's considered to be quite a small man, but that's, I think every historical video I watch, there seems to be this disclaimer, like he's not as short as everyone said. Yes, he's actually I, average height. I mean, I think it was a combination of A, the French measuring system was weird. Um, and also I think his enemies like to uh, make fun of him and bring him down by saying he was uh, quite short. So um, again, not so really true that he was as short as what they uh, have said he was. Yeah. But no, I've, I I learned a lot researching this. Like I didn't realize it was concentrated within such a short amount of time. It was within like 15 years or so that he did most of um, what has given him such a massive reputation in history. Exactly. He had a huge impact on both France and and Europe in such a small amount of time. Um, So it's been great doing this podcast. I've been Jimmy D. And I'm Mr. B. Stay curious. And stay cheeky. Stay cheeky.